Hello and welcome to Passing the Mic, a podcast where we take a look at the local music scene in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, and the surrounding area. I'm your host, Michael Pye. This is a podcast of Central Michigan Life. Be sure to visit us at cmlife.com and find this podcast on Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. And today on Pass the Mic, we have Mr. Joel Lewis. Hello, hello. All right, so before we dive into our discussion, if you don't mind, give us a little quick background about yourself. Uh, My name is uh, Joel Lewis. I'm from Mount Pleasant, Michigan. I'm a CMU alumni, also former faculty here, taught in the history department here for a while. Uh, Went to CMU, uh, bachelor's through uh, PhD, and then was off and about around the country for about 15 years, teaching at different places, and uh, just resettled back in Mount Pleasant about a year ago. Cool. So the first question, you obviously have a background in punk music in the Michigan music scene. So to start with, what first got you into music? Um, Particularly growing up in Mount Pleasant at the time I did, I graduated from high school in 1995, which means that my formative years uh, were the the end of the Cold War. Uh, all of a sudden, the, the world had completely changed. Uh, I was 13 years old at the time. Um, and really, in the early 1990s, nobody really had a sense of uh, what on earth was going on with the larger world, uh, what the new world would be like. And at the same time all that was going on is that the quote-unquote mainstream pop and hair bands of the 1980s were on the great decline. And suddenly you had the birth of uh, alternative music in the early 1990s. You know, bands such as Nirvana, uh, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, all of these groups coming out of the Seattle scene. And as a young teenager, um, well, I started looking to uh, those as inspiration instead of asking, you know, teenagers get rebellious. And instead of asking my parents about the world, as I started listening to, to, to Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder to learn things about the world, which may not have served me all that well, but mm-hmm. got me on my way. Yeah. So, so how did you like, learn music? Um, well, I'm, I'm a traditionally trained vocalist. Uh, when I first started at CMU, I was actually a double major in uh, theater and music and somehow ended up in uh, history and political science instead. Uh, but I sang for years in choir, and my uh, sophomore year of high school, there was a couple of guys that I started hanging out with from our choir. Uh, one of the main reasons being is that one of the individuals, his... Uh, mother had just passed away. Uh, That was uh, Jason Leiter. Uh, Jason Leiter has been my partner in almost all musical uh, activities I've ever been involved in. And also another guy named uh, Michael Scherf. Uh, He was in choir with us as well. And uh, what started us into music was that uh, we had traveled with Mount Pleasant High School Choir down to Elma for a choir concert and a festival. And there was a really, really cute girl there uh, from some other school. I never found out who she was, but I started jotting down words about her, sort of poetry. It eventually became a song called uh, Hippie Girl, and I was sharing that story with the guys. After the festival was over, uh, instead of heading right back to Mount Pleasant, we went to uh, Burger King there in Elma. Uh, These were back in the days when you still could... uh, could smoke in restaurants and things like that. Since we'd just been gotten done being good choir kids, we decided to go uh, consume a couple packs of uh, Camel Lights, uh, 
where uh, in a place where our parents couldn't bust us. And we started talking about music and all the things that bond us together. And they're like, hey, we should start a band, uh, which initially seemed like a cool idea because Michael was an excellent drummer. Uh, Jason came from a long line of musicians. His uh, grandmother is in the, uh, the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame for the state of Michigan. Uh, excellent guitarist, excellent vocalist. And they're like, well, Joel, what do you play? I'm like, um, nothing really. And Jason's like, well... <laughs> You know, I started off on bass. I've got an extra bass kicking around. Uh, do you want to learn how to play bass? And I was like, well, yeah, if it's only got four strings, that, that should be easy enough. And, uh, yeah, our first band, well, actually, the band was originally called Hack uh, because we we're stupid teenage kids that chain smoked all the time, so <coughs> constantly coughing. <laughs> One of our first songs we ever wrote was a song called Phlegm, which was a disgusting song about coughing up tar from your lungs but you know teenage kids in the 90s found that entertaining um that was originally started off as hack and we we're going to have an album called out of the ashes which was just going to be a big ashtray that was kind of gross looking but the curse of starting a teenage band is all of a sudden friends want to join in so we had two different good friends who both were like hey you need a lead singer if you have a band and there are friends who are in choir with us as well and they said, uh, we'll be your lead singer. So we had two different people who thought they were going to be our lead singer. So at our very first practice, neither of the lead singers showed up. And we wrote a couple of songs on the spot uh, as I was learning how to play bass. And then we said, well, what do we do? You know, these people think they're going to sing for the band. And they said, well, the best way to do this is that the band is broken up. So Hack no longer exists. Now let's start a new band, just the three of us. Like, well, what are we going to call ourselves? And uh, that was about a uh, uh, two hours of uh, hanging out in the kitchen, uh, just drinking Mountain Dew, smoking cigarettes and talking and randomly naming off things around the kitchen. And at one point I looked down at a Granny Smith apple. I'm like, hey, we could be Granny Smith. And people are like, that's stupid. And then two hours later, nobody had come up with anything better so granny smith was born and the way i sold it to the guys on as i said for our logo the a in granny can be like an anarchy sign and we actually started off as a as a christian punk rock band i was like and the t and smith can be like a cross you know we're like the edgy like punk christians I'm like yeah that could work uh later on we decided much cooler later on years and years later on instead of having that original logo as we stole the aerosmith logo and oh. superimposed granny smith over that uh don't tell those guys not that we ever made <laughs> any money off from it but uh yeah the 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 band was born we were uh playing in a a poorly lit uh poorly electrified basement in a farmhouse in wind michigan it was one of those things where if you touch your instrument and you touch the microphone at the same time, uh, you got an electric shock, uh, which was kind of fun early on. But yeah, we uh, that was the end of 1993 that we started up. And uh, yeah, we started uh, practicing uh, sometimes once a week, sometimes twice a week, and uh, tried to get ourselves ready to start playing shows. Uh, but early on, one of the great debates was you know, do we do covers of other bands or do we write our own music? And very early on, even though we practiced a couple of covers, is we decided to write our own music. And that was really a, a key part of our early start was that decision not to try and go off and be a, a bar band that does cover songs, but to, uh, you know, 
spirit of do your do it yourself punk write our own stuff even if it kind of sucked so how much of a shift did it feel like going from school choir to punk bands well they're, they're the you know one of the unspoken things about um high school is that uh you know they make jokes about it in the movies but usually the the uh marching band kids and the choirs well they're usually usually a bunch of deviants in those groups uh you know the sort of nerdy awkward kids who don't fit in with the, the jacks and the cool kids and all that sort of cliche 1980s and 1990s stuff um so it was actually a pretty natural fit because our choir was filled with you know you know any of the queer kids in our school were all in the choir you know any of the the strange art kids were in the choir the nerds were in the choir and the punk rock kids ended up in the choir too um so yeah, that, that was, uh, and one of the things that was good with that though, is that all of us, uh, you know, unlike a lot of other bands that tried to start up at the time, uh, is that all of us came from a background in music. So, you know, we, we could write punk music, but all of us could also, you know, read traditional sheet music, uh, write things classically if we wanted to. It's just, we, we chose not to. <laughs> yeah. All right. So... The band's called Hack. Did you, like... Well, to rephrase that, Hack, the original band, that, that only lasted for half a practice. Oh, okay. And then, then we were reborn as Granny Smith. Granny Smith started in 1993 and was together in several different incarnations up until the end of 2001. Oh, so... Hack and Granny Smith were the same band, except they were not. Ah, uh, yeah, they was it was the same three core members. It's just we didn't want to uh, tell our friends uh, Natalie Davis and Blaine Orlick that they could not be the lead singer of our band. So that we, Hack broke up and Granny Smith was born. Hmm. Were there other projects that you were involved in back in the day? Uh well, my my music career here in Mount Pleasant spanned from uh, 1993 all the way up until. Um, 2007 so um yeah uh granny granny smith stayed together off and on until 2001 based upon whether or not our drummer michael scherf was uh living in town there was a couple of times was one time they went off to bozeman montana well actually no i guess i left town as well in 1999 i took off to live in europe for a semester the band broke up then but we got back together um yeah um but there was other there was other incarnate there was what the first time that Michael Scherf left uh, to go live in Bozeman Montana for a while is that uh, Jason and I still wanted to keep a band going so we started uh, a strange anarchist punk ska band called uh, Uncle Scam and the Militia Ganders because at that time people talked about the Michi Michigan Militia all the time and the SKA were capitalized lowercase m and the A of course and Scam was an anarchy sign and that that was a, it was a, a short-lived project um but it was absolutely awesome uh the band was composed of jason Leiter and i as the core members uh we brought on a classic icon of central michigan university punk uh, a guy whose name was eric beckman who went by the name q uh about 90 percent of his body was tattooed big guy everyone knew him he was the epicenter of the music scene. Uh, we brought on Rob Forrest as a guitar player. Uh, we brought on Jason Rhodes as another guitar player. And then we also had uh, Scott Dealman playing drums for us. And uh, yeah, that, that was an absolutely uh, amazing time. Uh, 
unfortunately, the lead center of that band, uh, Q, just passed away this last summer. He was, uh, oh. um, yeah, that got the, the old group back together again for some mourning for a while. He was a, a much beloved professor of economics over at uh, Delta College. Oh yeah, I knew that name sounded familiar. I I was at Delta College, and I know that name Q Beckman. He was a yep. economics professor. Yes, I didn't did. know that he was a a punk musician. Yep, nope. He was he was uh, and he he was he was as it said across his toes. Uh, we'll we'll spell this out properly for uh, for the listening audience. Uh, one set of toes said punka, and the other set of toes said. Spock. Put those together and you can understand who Eric Beckman is. Uh, out of tribute to him, after he passed away, a number of friends got, got Q tattoos on him, not to be uh, confused with Q and QAnon, the original Q. And uh, I decided to take up Eric Beckman's label and yeah, I got the punka Spock across my toes, <laughs> which was the, the dumbest idea. I've, I've got about 50% of my body tattooed, but getting toe tattoos, that was Nah. But anyways, uh, did a tribute to Eric. But yeah, Eric was much beloved over at Delta, well-known in this community. He did his master's in economics here at CMU. Uh, for a while, when he first started at Delta, I was a history professor over at Saginaw Valley, um, just down the road. So he and I coordinated and put on together another campus event. Uh, but yeah, Eric is gone, but uh, dearly beloved. He was the, the center of much of the music scene in his undergraduate years, in his later years. Uh, once a year to try and get the old music crowd together as he held an event called the uh, Paps Blue Ribbon Lawn Sports Olympics where uh, musicians from all over who had graduated would come back and uh, yeah get get tanked and try to uh, you know do badminton bocce ball sometimes we had uh, little marathons involved ludicrous stuff but uh, and yeah he was a he was a good guy anyways getting sidetracked there he was uh formative person with Uncle Scam, but um, yeah, we, we had Granny Smith, Uncle Scam, and the Militia Ganders. Uh, for a while, there was a short-lived project called uh, Stationary Noisemakers, um, and that was kind of a gimmick thing because when we would have a show, is that we could, with the initials SNM, is we could, hey, come to a live SNM show. <laughs> yeah, funny stuff. That was a, a project with uh, Jason Leiter, Jason Johnson, Scott Dealman. Um, we had a weird project for a while that Eric was also involved in uh, called uh, The Fishers of Men. Uh, that was a fun, it was a, an acoustic project, but we were, uh, how do we say it? Essentially, we, we never booked any shows. What we do is randomly show up at other people's shows. And when people were trying to change the stage for a new band is we would uh, take over the stage we brought a, a acoustic guitar, acoustic bass. Uh, Eric was the lead singer for that. Uh, most of the time as he was reading verses out of the Bible in the tradition of fishers of men. And I was the uh, flogger. The flogger? The flogger. Uh, eventually built up in some type of religious zeal because Eric was a loud guy. As he would rip his shirt off. He would pull his belt off, he'd invite me on stage, and I would publicly beat him. <laughs> and then we would leave quickly as possible before anyone called the cops. But yeah. <laughs> Fishers of Men was a, was a fun group. Um, but yeah, that was mostly 
uh, undergrad years, and then uh, since I stayed on here in Mount Pleasant through master's and PhD, is I got involved with uh, a couple other groups as a graduate student, but maybe that's a topic for later on in the interview, because uh, my, my music career sort of breaks down of uh, high school undergraduate years and then the graduate years uh, where I gave up on punk rock. I mean, that was a really nice tribute to uh, Hugh Beckman that you had there. I did not even know that he passed away. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, a very tragic and unfortunate event. Uh, felt bad about a week before he passed away. I had reached out to him. I had found a bunch of old Uncle Scam flyers, uh, taking pictures, sending them to him. He's like, oh, God, yeah, we got to get together and talk soon. And then, you know, it's the, the, the nature of uh, punks with it once they hit their 40s is that... Um, yeah, is that the number of years we uh, spent uh, drinking 40s, uh, you know, uh, takes us out of this world too soon. Yeah. So. yeah, it sure does. So tell me a little bit about life on the road and band practice. Well, our Granny Smith uh, band practice was essentially in whatever space we could find that parents uh, wouldn't throw us out. Uh, <laughs> my mother and father uh, were very, very kind and gracious for a number of years to let us uh, practice at their house, whether in a back room or a spare bedroom. Uh, we started off in a little, a little basement in Wynn, Michigan. Uh, but yeah, we practiced at a number of different places. Um, one of the best ones was we, uh, we used to practice in a a barn out on Shepherd Road, and um, the barn didn't have any heat, uh, and also, much like the basement in Wynn, had very bad electricity, so if you touch something, you get zapped, but for the fact that it had no heat, it meant that when December, January, February came, we, we were still practicing a couple times a week uh, with trying to play punk rock when your fingers are frozen is, uh, yeah, quite the quite the interesting time, but we, we used to compare it to... Uh, uh, attempting to uh, uh, run a sprint with a, a parachute attached to your back, be like, you know, if, if you if you can still play something in triple time when it's uh, ten degrees below zero, uh, certainly once you're up on stage, you'll be able to keep that energy up. So um, we're never much on on aspects of uh, touring. Um, one of the main reasons being is that the entire point of Granny Smith and the things that we built locally here was to try to build up. Um, the Mount Pleasant music scene. Um, while Mount Pleasant has always had a very vibrant history of music, sometimes associated with CMU, is that most of it centered in um, downtown at Rebels, uh, or back in the 80s called the Foolery. Uh, and, and, you know, while bar bands have their unique space, is that that means that you primarily have uh, 21 and up shows. And having grown up in this town and realizing for young people that Kids get bored. Uh, they don't have many things to do, so a lot of kids go out, out drinking, smoking weed, all sorts of stuff. And we want to, uh, yeah, build something uh, of youth uh, for youth. So um, there had been a band when we were in high school called uh, Gimp Knuckle. Uh, ben Bracken, uh, Pete Nolan, Allison Stanley. Is they were the ones who got us involved into doing. Like first of all, they gave us one of our first shows. But second of all, is that Ben Bracken used to. Uh, rent out the Wesley Foundation here on campus, and he would hold uh, all-ages shows there. 
but after he graduated Mount Pleasant High School and, and moved on to other places to go to school is that that disappeared for young people locally here. So uh, Granny Smith was involved in uh, uh, reviving that. Uh, we kept uh, monthly punk rock shows going at the Wesley Foundation from uh, 1994 up until 1999. At that point, all of us had turned 21. We'd helped to build up a local scene and helped to keep it going, and we tried to pass it on to other young people and started into the bar scene then at that point, now that we were of age. Um, but yeah, the, the Wesley Foundation for... for yeah, if you think about yeah, you know, if you think about Michigan music, there's of course you know Flint. Flint's always had an awesome scene, particularly around the Flint local. Saginaw always had Jamestown Hall, still does. You know, people with Rip Heart Productions. Detroit, of course. You know, if you're a punk or ska or anything like that, down in Detroit, there's a million different venues and outlets for you. But in Mount Pleasant, you know, what the hell do Mount, kids in Mount Pleasant have? Good question. Yeah. So uh, luckily, we had some very. Uh, caring folk over at the Wesley Foundation that did not mind kids with colored hair and mohawks. Uh, didn't mind the kids were out back and shows uh, smoking cigarettes and stuff as long as there wasn't any alcohol or drugs is that, you know, they, I think they charge us 50 bucks for the place and uh, yeah, we'd have all ages shows there all the time and it, it attracted a lot of attention around the area. We started having bands from Detroit coming on up to play. Uh, had a number of bands up in Clare. Uh, there's an old punk band in Clare called Din, which is hands down one of the most obnoxious punk bands I've ever known. Uh, Ian and Isaac Bruski, a um, couple of wannabe uh, street punks up in the, the mean streets of Clare, Michigan, doing punk rock, uh, fun kids. But um, yeah, we had bands coming over from Saginaw area, bands like Crease from Midland. Um, and yeah, and um, the Wesley Foundation for years was a, a place for uh, young punk and alternative kids to get together for good shows, have a good time, and for kids who are starting out new bands to, uh, yeah, have a venue to play them in. Uh, you know, I was growing up, there were a ton of bands here in Mount Pleasant, but they almost exclusively played the bars. Or if somebody was throwing a festival down at Island Park or sometimes here on campus for Earth Day, is that we had bands like uh, Pablo's Dog, uh, Big Angry Fish, uh, Occasional Tables with uh, Liam McKay, who we can talk about later on, uh, Workhorse, Biddy's Love Monkey. Uh, these bands were all great, but it wasn't, you know, having a set venue. And that's, you know, that's really where it comes down to with the, the spirit of punk rock is if there are opportunities for you, well, you don't just sort of give up. Like, you, you do it yourself. If there is no scene, you, you make the scene. You find the venue. I can start off in somebody's basement and then expand out if you have opportunity. So uh, yeah, Wesley Foundation has been a, a key for several decades in uh, yeah, young people and music. So um, yeah, the only time Granny Smith ever, like outside of going over to Tri-Cities area for shows is there was one time that we went down to uh, Toledo, Ohio to play. There was a couple of punk bands. Oh, what were they called? Um, Lazy American Workers and Black Eye. Uh, filthy street punks from the horrible state of Ohio. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hate Ohio. Uh, oh, look, fun fact, um, you know, Michigan and Ohio, we, we went to war with each other once over the, the, the shithole called Toledo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, one person died in that war. A good Michigan patriot was killed off. 
in a bar brawl with a thug from Ohio. Uh, the federal government stepped in to settle it and they gave Ohio uh, Toledo and they gave us the UP. And uh, I hope you're enjoying Toledo, Ohio. Although one of our band members lives down there now. So Rob Porras, sorry that you live in the, the enemy state of Ohio. Good luck to you. <laughs> But yeah, that was horrible. Like we had to drive down in a van through an ice and snowstorm. Uh, we got when we got there, since we weren't part of the local scene, uh, nobody gave a shit about us. They, they were, um, they, people didn't boo us, but certainly nobody applauded. Uh, they were just waiting for the local guys, and then I think they gave us twenty bucks cash to cover driving on down through an ice storm. So uh, we. We decided after that that there's uh, no more idea of trying to do tours or anything like that. That we'd just stay right here in Mount Pleasant and uh, build up a scene, um, which we did. And once we switched over to more of aspects of the bar scene, uh, is there was a whole bunch more bands that we got on. That um, was really cool. Um, you know, one of the main forces here in Mount Pleasant music during the late '90s and beginning of the 20th century was uh, a label called uh, Proletariat Records. It was uh, founded by uh, Dan Nixon from the fine city of Ortonville, and uh, his roommate Rob Forrest uh, got involved with uh, Fabrizio Constantini, uh, J. Joe, also known as Harry J., uh, who was a sound guy down at Rubbles, uh, and Proletariat Records, I, I can give you a copy of their one compilation, Read them the Riot Act, but Proletariat Records for a while here in Mount Pleasant was a, a huge powerhouse in the local music scene, uh, not only in terms of doing recordings and things and merchandising, but um, trying to put on big festivals. Uh, there was a, uh, in particular, doing charity festivals for uh, multiple sclerosis as we had a festival we did for a couple of years called Overtime Festival. Our uh, second year of doing it is not only did we have like eight or nine bands, but we had uh, professional wrestling as well. We ran out of a park and brought in a big wrestling stage and everything. And so in between punk bands had wrestling going and then uh, Mount Pleasant Police decided, even though we had all the proper permits to come uh, break it up. That was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, we showed him our permits, and even my father was there trying to talk with the cops, and the cops were like, unless you shut things down, you're all going to get arrested. My dad's like, it's a fundraiser for multiple sclerosis. What are you doing? And they're like, you speak out of line, sir. We're going to arrest you. All this stupid stuff. Uh, they ended up getting a ton of, of flack for it in the local media for a couple of months after that uh, for breaking up a charity event. But eventually we... we restarted the festival and did it down in Rubbles and that ended up being really cool but one of the challenges of Mount Pleasant Music and with Central Michigan University is when the two scenes sort of come together and create something is it can create a huge powerful energy but the problem with that is so many people who come to CMU is they're coming to get a bachelor's degree and then they graduate and move on so unless you have a local scene that's constantly keeping that going in association with CMU bands is that, yeah, your, your scene, uh, once people start graduating, is the, the, the scene dies off. And that's, yeah, always been a challenge around here. Yeah, all the turnover, I, I can see. Yeah, yeah, especially proletariat records after making such a huge impact here in the uh, 
mid-Michigan community, uh, particularly with bands like Soccer Moms. Soccer Moms is probably hands down with Fabrizio Constantini, one of the coolest bands this town has ever had. Uh, but, you know, after the members of that graduated, as they tried to move operations down into Detroit area and get into uh, get into some of the scene down there. And it's just, it, yeah, it's, it's when you try and move a scene to another city that already has its scene, uh, yeah, it's hard for it to break through. And particularly after graduating college, you know, people start getting married, having kids, uh, have a mortgage to deal with, all that kind of crap. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to be a, a punk rock when you got bills to pay. But yeah, I see that. So, how about tell me about making music? Uh, the process of writing, laying down tracks in the studio, and all that jazz. Well, you know, um, part of the aspect of doing doing punk stuff is that uh, you know there there was one album with Granny Smith that we got a chance to do with a professional sound guy. Uh, this album called Sid's Basement because uh, we record it in a guy named Sid's Basement. Uh, he was an audio guy down at Rubbles and he decided to volunteer in the afternoon. Uh, and that, 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 was, that was really cool. Uh, Sid did some great work for us and J.J. helped out with that. But most of the time in the '90s, you know, we we saved up some money and we you know, it was back, you know, geez, you know, before CDs. As we saved up some money, went and bought a four-track recorder, uh, uh, maybe rent a few extra mics, and uh, start the very tedious process of um, trying to lay down tracks, and then afterwards trying to mix it, and then after that, having multiple cassette players to dub down tapes, and then. You know, this was before, you know, scanners and fancy printers, so you made all your album inserts on uh, copy machines where you collage stuff together and try and piece it together and a uh, whole lot of work that went into it. And that that was what sucked early on for us is that we put so much work into tapes and then tapes were disappearing and all of a sudden your computers had CD burners. They're like, oh my goodness. So then we tried to digitize and do CDs at home and... Yeah, it was a challenge. Um, so, re but you know, particularly for Granny Smith, uh, you know, we I think we put out four different albums. Did uh, Drivers Against Drunk Mothers in '95, '96 uh, did an album called Bane Dramage, '97 uh, released How About Them Apples, which was Granny Smith's greatest hits, which was essentially every song we had, uh, just one album. Then in 2001, we did Sid's Basement, which was our only CD. Uh, but really for us, you know, the, the recordings were never that important. For us, it was about the experience of the, uh, the live show. 
we were a band that put a, a ton of energy into our live shows. You know, my role in Granny Smith was sort of like um, Sid Vicious with the Sex Pistols. Like, Sid sucked at bass guitar. I still suck at bass guitar. <laughs> but the flip side is I could keep up with things. And uh, to make up for it is uh, always a highly intense stage show. Um, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, showing up on stage in a dress, uh, whether it be uh, smashing instruments. Uh, you know, Granny Smith became notorious around Mich Michigan for uh, several years because we always had one finale song called uh, Logic. It was an extended piece that had improv in the middle, but the very end of Logic is I always got on top of the... Uh, bass drum kit for our drummer uh, started playing along and when he went to go hit the final beat he would kick the bass drum as hard as he could and uh, see how far he could launch me <laughs> uh, sometimes it was just a couple feet sometimes it was a good 10 feet uh, you know, end up being all bloody and mangled and kids going yeah yeah <laughs> uh, and that's really what kept kids going you know, between songs we're always making jokes laughing people in the audience knew us uh, the, the topics of our songs uh, resonated with the crowd and they always knew we were gonna uh, smash things up and do crazy things so that was uh... but the songwriting process uh, that, that's always a challenge with, with any band uh, early on with Granny Smith is a three piece is that um, we try to all equally write songs um, and it's one of the things with that with the one exception of the Foo Fighters with Dave Grohl is uh, uh, drummers shouldn't be allowed to write songs or maybe maybe Rush as well Rush is fine but uh, oh yeah Rush yeah, is. Uh, yeah that, that, that's a whole different thing I'm not going to try and compare our experience to Rush <laughs> but uh <laughs> You know, for a while, we let our, our, our drummer try to write a few songs, and then we would let him go up and play guitar, and the guitar player would switch to bass, and I would sit there and try and play drums. But all of his songs were just, while they were heartfelt, they were really mopey and dreary. And so we, we I think we recorded one of Michael's songs once, and then tried to, if he was over, like, hey, can I play that song at the next show? We're like, please don't. Uh, <laughs> But uh, Jason Leiter was the, the real creative talent with uh, Granny Smith. Uh, he is just, you know, still to this day absolute musical genius. Uh, he, was the, he was the kid, you know, if you're familiar with the, the Weezer song, uh, In My Garage, uh, that, was, that was Jason Leiter growing up as he spent hours upon hours on end. Uh, his parents smoked, but uh, they didn't want him smoking in the house because he wasn't old enough. So uh, he would sit out in his garage with his guitar and um, chain smoke cigarettes and write lyrics and write songs. And uh, I tried to keep up with him, but it was hard when you know he was a talented musician and I was a person picking up a bass and first trying to learn. I mean, I had written poetry and lyrics for years, but uh, the early days, uh, Jason and I wrote you know, in many ways, sort of, sort of equal number of songs. Uh, usually, what would happen is that somebody would write write some lyrics and write a few licks at home. They'd bring it into practice. Uh, we'd start playing around with it, and if we started feeling something cool with it, is we we'd run with it, expand the song out, and sometimes a project would just completely flop, and we would drop it. But uh, you know, particularly with the early days with Granny Smith, uh, is that Jason could write beautiful songs and I wrote the uh, the super angry songs or the obnoxious songs so like uh, 
Um, you know, we had one song that was sort of a, a parody on the old Dead Kennedy song, Macho Insecurity, uh, but ours was called uh, Assertive Machotivity. Uh, it was about, you know, growing up as a punk kid, like, you know, your, your worst enemy in the world were the, the rednecks and the jocks, because they were always the ones trying to kick the crap out of you. Uh, so it was, it was a song uh, uh, about idiot jocks and all these things, and really obnoxious. Um, but that was cool because then it meant that, like, you know, people could show up and, like, a song that Jason wrote would be catchy, it would be uh, thoughtful, and people would really enjoy the musical experience of it. And then if it was a song that I wrote, is they would enjoy me either A, in the most intensive way, just screaming my heart out in a microphone, or B, uh, just doing weirdo lunatic things on stage. Uh, but... Yeah, Jason Leiter was always the heart of that. And uh, Michael Scherf, one of the most talented drummers I've ever known. Uh, you know, he was with anything that Jason or I brought in. He was always able to, to start laying something down really quick. Um, but yeah, the, the particular, you know, there's a couple of bands that we had, you know, with Uncle Scam. Um, you know, I think Eric only ever wrote one song. Usually uh, I wrote a lot of the lyrics and then uh, the other guys in the band, particularly uh, Jason Rhodes, who's still in town. He's the owner of Intricate Decor. Uh, Jason Rhodes, particularly with it being a ska band, he's, he would write the ska licks and things. And I don't know. With each group, it really ends up different. I know at some point I'd like to talk about uh, some of the music projects I was involved with in uh, graduate school because that took a tremendous shift both in aspects of songwriting and performance. But, uh, yeah, with punk... You know, you, you come up with a you know a few sort of catchy words. You try and put something together, uh, find three chords that hopefully work with each other, and, and hope your drummer can uh, lay something fast. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know if that got to the heart of what you were saying. Or, oh yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, it's pretty interesting. You know how you know, punk bands handle you know, songwriting. Yeah, it's um, it's. You know, you, you try and think about the, you know, our topics range from, well, we used to, we, one of the things that guys, we did a lot of times growing up was it, we would intentionally try to uh, hijack each other's relationships. You know, if somebody was dating somebody and they're really happy, well, for a punk band, like, well, that ruins you. <laughs> like, you're like, punk, it, you got to be angry about something. So it was, we'd occasionally try and hijack each other's relationships and screw each other's lives up because we're like, we'll get another album out of it, man. And, <laughs> Most surely you do, but um, but yeah, that's while well, well, one can keep up the the spirit of punk over the years in terms of uh, do it yourself initiative, all these different things. Is that yeah? By by the time yeah, it, any punk rocker who actually lives to the age of twenty seven uh, should be grateful when they w wake up in the morning and are twenty eight years old and made it past the twenty seven club. And uh, give up on punk rock then. You know, they even go off and be a folk musician or something. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, what would you say was your best experience, or, or your and or your worst one? Okay. Um. I think that really my best experience with music. Um, you know, the, the Wesley Foundation and the shows we did there, it was always fun. It was always lively. We had a great time. Uh, Proletariat Records was awesome. Uh, doing shows here on campus was fantastic. But really, later on, when I was in graduate school, 
and started working with a another musician named Liam McKay. Uh, that's really when I had my best uh, best experiences. Um, Liam, we uh, did a, a a tour once in Northern Michigan. That was awesome. Our our drummer Brian Hansen, uh, local owner of Bees Music here, is he oh, got yeah. us a, a for a while. We had a, a sponsorship from uh, Paps Blue Ribbon. So anywhere that we played in Michigan, if if people showed up to the show, as the bar would run specials on uh, big tall boys of PBR, usually like a buck fifty or two bucks. So uh, people always came out for our shows because well, not only did they enjoy the music, but it was uh, yeah, uh, cheap cheap. Bo- Actually, it's funny. There was a, another band here in town for a while called the Kincaids, two piece band, like one of the most obnoxious, amazingly wonderful things that's ever happened in Michigan. Um, and for a while, they had a sponsorship from uh, Boone's Farm. So if you showed up to one of their shows, you could get a full bottle of Boone's Farm for two bucks. And there was one time that we ended up at Rubbles with them when we had our PBR sponsorship, and they also had their Boone's Farm sponsorship. And there were all these poor, dumb, rock and roll idiots walking around, one hand a, a tall boy of PBR, the other hand a full bottle of Boone's Farm. And, oh, the the horrific hangovers that happened after that. Um, but yeah, playing playing with uh, Liam McKay and Brian Hansen, uh, that was, uh, Liam McKay is hands down the best songwriter I've ever known uh, and dear friend for years. And Brian Hansen as well. Uh, Brian uh, knows about every instrument that there is. Uh, he started off on bass, he's an amazing bass player. And he became our drummer because that was the one instrument he didn't know. He didn't know drums, so he's like, "I'm going to teach myself drums, and I'll, I'll be I'll be your drummer." I'm like, "Oh, all right." And that was so. Those were the, my best musical times were with Liam McKay and Brian Hansen, uh, two of my favorite people in the world. Um, not that the other stuff wasn't cool, but it was young, angry stuff, not more uh, mature things. Uh, worst time. This was with Granny Smith. Uh, back when we used to practice in that barn out in Shepherd Road, is there was one warm day that we decided to uh, do a barn concert, and we just opened up the doors of the barn, set up, and had a bunch of bunch of kids show up. We had a a, a wheelbarrow full of beer, uh, and <laughs> your, your typical sort of mid Michigan country stuff, and uh, a bunch of rednecks in their trucks were driving by. They decided to uh, stop and try and invade our party, and uh, yeah, they're they're going around trying. And they're older guys. They're trying to flirt with little girls, trying to start fights. Oh, and during the middle of a song, I saw one of them just trying to mess with this young girl, oh, and I just I screamed over the mic, "F it, get him!" <laughs> all of a sudden, all these young punks who were afraid of the rednecks being like, "Let's all get them!" and throwing full beers at them and stuff. <laughs> Eventually no, got in the no. truck, squealed away. Uh, but that that was, you know, while it seemed fun in punk rock, I mean, there's nothing more punk than than throwing a throwing a Paps Blue Ribbon can at a truck covered in Confederate flags. Um, but at the same time, yeah, the yeah the difference between punks and rednecks is uh, rednecks own guns. Punks <laughs> punks just got their fists in their bottles. Uh, so that was kind of scary because we were afraid we end up shutting down the show because we were afraid all night the, the rednecks were going to come back, beat us up, shoot us, whatever. Uh, yeah, so that was, that was probably the worst musical night. But I don't know. It, it's hard to say. I don't know what spanned 15 years. Um, 
a lot of ups and downs. Oh, yeah, I'm but, sure. Yeah. Maybe from a punk perspective, that was, like, an awesome, like, one of the punkest moments <laughs> ever. Well, actually, the, the punkest moment came when I wasn't even in punk bands. Uh, Liam McKay Project uh, had several. Uh, I started playing with Liam in 2004. Uh, I was a chef down at the Brass Cafe, a graduate student here. He was one of my neighbors, and he would come down, and he would play music at the Brass just by himself. And then he brought a couple other people in, including myself. We started playing at the Brass. As a Lee, he, he Solo, he was Liam McKay. Then when he added a couple of people, he's like, hey, um, Liam McKay and the Saints. But then we added a couple more people. We added Steve Barber and uh, Lou Constantine on drums. Uh, Lou is hand, hands down the craziest mother effer I've ever known. <laughs> um, and we decided to try something, turning the more folk stuff into uh, more alternative rock. And uh, how do I say this? We, we rebranded the group for about six months as the Mercy Seat. And... Uh, that was where I had my most punk rock moments. And uh, other local musicians, please don't try this because I don't know if he still has it. But it used to be Rubbles, the owner Tom. I think in the early 90s is he applied for a, uh, a stripper's license. Oh, dear. Yes, and he was approved. But then all the local businesses downtown were like, you know, we pride ourselves here at CMU Mount Pleasant that we, we don't, have, like, unlike other <laughs> college towns, we don't have strip clubs. And uh, so Tom gave in. He's, okay, fine, I won't turn Rubbles into a strip club. Or <laughs> but he always kept that license up. And what I figured out as a musician, we'll put it this way. I used to be a big fan of Red Hot Chili Peppers growing up. And if you know anything about uh, their bass guitar player, Flea, one of the things he was notorious for was being up on stage only wearing a sock oh, man. in a certain place. <laughs> but what I realized with Rubbles was that um, as long as an individual who was a performer did not step foot off from the stage, legal technicality, you could be naked on stage. <laughs> and the, oh, the poor number of times Liam being like, don't do it, don't do it. And particularly during Mercy Seat, when you put Lou and I together, there was there was one set that like I, I was being good, being good, being good, and all of a sudden Lou gives me this look. Like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and as Liam was talking in the microphone, he's not looking behind, and there's both Lou and I taking, not and not even the sock on there. Took everything off, and I just lowered down the bass strap a little bit. <laughs> and yeah, our last two songs, the, the drummer and the bass player, completely naked on stage at Rubbles. Uh, don't do that now, kids. Uh, Tom does not appreciate it. I think he still has his license, but just in case, don't do it. Uh, <laughs> it's one of these things you, you learn as you go forward. Uh, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, yeah, exactly. So that, 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 that got to... That, that that was pretty punk rock. That was fun. <laughs> but uh, not to be repeated again. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so let me see. Um, now, after Granny Smith, uh, what was your music career like after that? Well, um, Granny Smith kept breaking up because people moved away. So for a while we broke up because Michael moved to Montana. When he came back, we restarted. While he was gone, we were Uncle Scam. Um, 
I went up, Rob Forrest and I went off to study in the UK for a semester in 99. It broke up then, got back together while I got back. Um, and then in uh, September of 2001 is I moved to uh, Glasgow, Scotland for a year to work on my PhD in history. And um, we had gotten Dan Nixon, the, the guy who ran Proletariat Records and was the uh, sinner for the negatives, is that he was going to step in and, and play bass for Granny Smith. Uh, but that just didn't work out. So uh, during the year that I was in Scotland, uh, Granny Smith finally dissolved and died. And for uh, a couple of years, I just just wasn't involved in music at all. You know, I was working on my PhD. Uh, he used to own the uh, used bookstore downtown called the Welsh Dragon. Um, doing family things and then it finally picked back up in uh, 2004 when I started playing with uh, Liam and that was by that time I had grown and matured except for the stunts with the mercy seat oh. and the, the fun thing the really fun thing with Liam uh, you know we did a, a, a places like the brass cafe we do a nice sort of quiet set where we did some some traditional covers and people enjoyed it and Liam's a great songwriter so we'd do some of his stuff and then we'd get done playing at the Brass Cafe and then move next door to Rubbles and all of a sudden it was a, a full-fledged uh, rock and roll experience and uh, particularly then at that point you know getting in my mid-20s working on my PhD is it was so awesome to every every couple weeks a uh, couple weekends out of the month to get together and to, to, to feel young and fun again and playing with Liam was was absolutely amazing, but um, oh, what was I gonna say about that? It's the beauty of getting old; you start forgetting things. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but now, um, what was the question again? Oh, oh, I was basically asking like what your music career looked like after Granny Smith finally yeah. ended its cycle of. Breaking up and then getting back to going, basically okay. finishing. I know the, I was going to get at. So, okay. so, so after after Mercy Seat broke up, we went back to Liam and the Saints, but with a new lineup. It was Liam McKay, Brian Hansen, and I, three piece, and um, it was during that time that we had the the PBR sponsorship. And what was funny was that uh, people were like, you know, you guys call yourself the Saints, but you've got a PBR sponsorship. You guys are <laughs> ludicrous. <laughs> jackass drunks all the time you know <laughs> saints you guys are sinners and we're like we are <laughs> so uh we changed it from uh, liam and the saints to liam and the sinners and that was kind of funny for a while and then brian's just like let's just shorten it we're just the sinners and uh the sinners um that was awesome uh, i played the last time that i played music live was with them and it was on my uh, 30th birthday down at Rebels. And uh, we turned into a huge celebration. Um, towards the end of the band, we brought on uh, another guitar player named Joel, Sh Joel Choate. Uh, and Joel's position was to, they knew eventually that I'd be graduating and going off and starting my career. So uh, Joel was originally a bass player, but also played guitar. So he filled in on guitar as a second guitarist until the point that I left the band and then he switched on over to bass and they got uh, add in a keyboard player a young guy named Spencer who was awesome but that was fantastic because what even though I was not on the album the the one album that I sent to you uh, just called the sinners um, is that they recorded that 
just after I had left the band. And that final product, you know, you ask me, like, later on, if you ask me about, like, favorite albums or things, is the, the album from The Sinners. Um, yeah, it's just it's one of my absolute favorite albums to listen to. Not only did Brian Hansen do uh, an amazing job in the recording and the mixing of it, but um, it's one of those albums that not only can I relate to every song, but if, as I listen to the songs, as I can, uh, yeah, have that, that feeling of uh, nostalgia of, you know, back in the day when I was defined as... Uh, you know, punk rock bass player Joel versus the adult Dr. Lewis historian, blah, blah, blah. So, mm. yeah. Sounds like a pretty cool gig to take up after, you know, finishing from the music scene to start a music business, you know, like Mr. Hansen did. Yeah, yeah. Well, Brian, Brian had been, it used to be Cook's Music, and Brian worked there for years, and then as Cook's was wrapping up, is uh, Brian bought him out and has just been expanding since then, and that's, you know, a, a great person to potentially interview in the future would be be Brian Hansen because Brian is just absolutely keyed into still to this day with with everything going on in local music. Uh, you know, I've only been living back in Mount Pleasant for a year, but I was I was gone for almost fifteen years, um, and so coming back, I know little to none. Particularly after COVID and things, I don't really know what goes on anything with local music, but. Uh, oh. Uh, yeah, that's one of the things I appreciate with your podcast is the opportunity to not only talk about some of the past, but I look forward to future episodes to, to learn more about what, what's going on with local music here. Yeah, we do have a little bit more to go before this semester wraps up. Right. So, yeah. Are you planning on continuing this in the fall? or? Um, well, I'm, I'm graduating this semester. Gotcha. I don't know if someone else is going to continue it later or not, but you know, I thought this would be a nice thing to have for for the moment. Yeah, well, I, I, I really hope that, that you potentially get somebody interested in, and line that up because that's, you know, it's that's the, the great challenge of, of, of cultural things in a college town is like, cool, you start something cool, an awesome podcast, and like, oh, and you're graduating, and then it becomes like, oh, remember once when there was that awesome podcast? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, you've got to uh, figure out how to, who to pass that torch on to. Uh, that was one of the cool things with the the Wesley Foundation and after Proletariat Records is that after I had stepped away from that was eventually in uh, 2004, uh, this guy named Eric Nielsen, uh, who has been living in Beijing for, I think, 10, 15 years now. But uh, Eric not only picked up the Wesley Foundation stuff, 
but he expanded it out greatly. Uh, when I was doing stuff, we'd do a show once a month. Uh, for a couple of years, Eric Nielsen and uh, Deadweight Records, uh, they they had shows going on there uh, every single Saturday. Um, and yeah, those guys built up an amazing scene. Uh, I didn't participate in it because by that time I was getting in my later 20s and things and, and punk rock is awesome, but it, it's, it's something for, for young people. Um, but yeah, I was always very, because particularly when Eric was running things over there, is that he uh, yeah, really got a lot of local activism involved in stuff. So it wasn't just about music, it was about uh, getting involved in politics and uh, you know, they, they do different workshops on, uh, and fundraisers for transgender movements, anti-fascist movements, and yeah, some great stuff that Eric did over there. Yeah, All right, let me check this real quick. All right, that's good. Okay, so. So, what are some musicians and bands from Michigan or in general that you look up to? Uh, there was a band that we played with a couple of times at the Wesley Foundation that I don't know whatever happened to those guys. Uh, it was a band named Vent. Uh, their lead singer and bass player, Russ Martin, is out, outside of Lus Claypool from uh, Primus. Uh, is that Russ was hands down the, the most amazing bass player I'd ever seen in my life. And it was really cool early on of getting to be friends with such an amazing musician. Um, because, yeah, as I said before, uh, but my presence in my band was about the stage show. I, I sucked as a bass player. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, the fact Russ would talk to me about bass and things, that was cool. Uh, growing up, there was one local band, uh, Big Angry Fish. They were, uh, yeah, they, they did a lot of, in the early 90s. They were doing a lot of, co- they'd cover things like Violent Femmes, Red Hot Chili Peppers, all sorts of things. They were uh, great for growing up. But definitely my, my two favorite musicians uh, from Michigan and my two favorite musicians ever is it's such an honor and a blessing is I got to play with both of them. Uh, Jason Leiter is hands down uh, one of the most creative and, and kind souls ever. I, he's the only person who I've ever been able to see just to take full aspects of, of tragedy in life and transform it into beauty. Um, just just an amazing inspirational guy. He lives down in Chicago now. I don't get to see him very often, but yeah, I, I think that, I mean, Jason Leiter, uh, you know, he, he was sort of quiet um, on things, but what a talent powerhouse. And then Liam McKay, uh, absolutely, particularly for a while, uh, Liam McKay and uh, Steve Barber and I playing together. Uh, Steve uh, was an art professor here, uh, and uh, we all lived in the same neighborhood. So Steve lived up in Arnold, I lived on Fancher, and uh, Liam lived on Lansing Street. And the, the, their kids, when they walked elementary school, they'd walk back and forth past my house in the morning, and uh, we'd get together for band practice. And uh, yeah, um, and then of course Brian Hansen. Uh, and this, like, I, I don't know, I've, I've known, a, well, put it, one person who doesn't get his name mentioned enough, uh, guy named Tone. Um, so, I don't know if any musicians you've talked to yet have talked about Tone. Uh, I don't think so. Tone is just this wild, crazy, eccentric, big bearded, big hair. He used to run... Uh, open mic nights at coffee shops and things and he played in a few different bands but tone 
tone was, uh, yeah, just the heart of creativity in this town for so long. And, yeah, as far as the, the larger Michigan music scene, um, yeah, I, like, never tried to branch out that much and never tried, never got to know that many other bands around the state because really what we wanted to do was to, to build something here in Mount Pleasant. You know, maybe if people from the outside wanted to come on in and participate, that was cool, but, uh, yeah, Mount Pleasant needed a thing and it didn't have it, and we, we tried to fill that void. But, yeah. So... What are some of your favorite albums of all time? I know you already like briefly touched on like the one album that is one of your favorites, but like what are some others? Uh, well, it was kind of awkward for me when I when we transitioned into stuff of punk rock because traditionally growing up, I wasn't really a big fan of punk rock initially. Like I was, I was the kid in high school with a black eyeliner on and who my little my little Walkman. I always had a. Yeah. Uh, the Cure, uh, maybe you know, Cure Disintegration. When I got that album, uh, changed my life. Uh, Violent Femmes that changed my life. Uh, Nine Inch Nails. I used to, sort of, used to get into really sort of dreary things, uh, especially Tool. Huge fan of Tool. Actually, Granny Smith. We almost uh, got our butts kicked by Maynard Keenan once. <laughs> that was cool. The Tool happened to be driving through town. They were up at the Seven Eleven on Mission Street. And we were pulling out in our old Granny Smith mobile, which was this horrible old Chevy Cavalier covered in 20 layers of spray paint. <laughs> and we almost ran into our tour bus. Uh, the The logo on the front of the tour bus was a country music thing, so we just thought it was some dumb country music thing. <laughs> it was Tool. We almost ran. Uh, and, uh, like, we were only inches away from hitting the bus. And once we found out it was Tool, like, the next day, because it was in morning, so I'm like, local band, tool, like, hey, now I'm out pleasant, drinking. Like, man, wouldn't that have been so cool if we would have smashed into Tool's tour bus and Maynard Keenan come out and kick our butts? Yeah. But, <laughs> um, yeah, as far as punk rock goes, like, the one of my biggest influences early on was uh, the Dead Kennedys, uh, especially their uh, their anthem, uh, Nazi Punks F Off. Uh yeah, I used to love Jello Biafra. Uh, got a chance. I have a Dead Kennedys tattoo. Uh, got a chance to meet Jello Biafra once. Showed him my Dead Kennedys tattoo, and he just told me to f off, which felt pretty punk rock. Uh, I've also been told to f off by Henry Rollins twice. <laughs> uh, that was a. I was and that Henry Rollins really had a huge impact on my life. Um, not just with the music, but I used to. I got a Henry Rollins poetry book autographed for my 16th birthday from my friend Natalie Davis. And walk, growing up, I always walked around with a, a Jim Morrison poetry book and a Henry Rollins poetry book and read their stuff all the time. And as far as lyric writing, uh, Rollins was just my absolute inspiration on stuff. But I also like uh, other things more lighthearted. Uh, Dead Milkman. Uh, Dead Milkman, I always loved. Uh, sort of silly songs, punk rock girl and all these things. Uh, there's actually a local musician here named uh, Dave Moscow. The, he, uh, we've joked about starting a band that only covers uh, Dead Milkmen and the Violent Femmes, and we we're going to call ourselves the Dead Femmes and uh, just do covers of those songs, <laughs> keep those bands alive. But you know, there's, there's some standard stuff. You know, punk kids always like Bad Religion, No Effects. Uh, no Effects have a sort of love-hate relationship in my adult years, though, because no-effects songs are all about, 
getting messed up and getting drunk and all these things about how to continue that on when you're an old punk rocker and yeah uh, punk rockers, once you hit your 40s, man, it's time to sober up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. If you're still alive and your liver's functioning in your 40s, you've got to you've got to thank your guardian angels around you, clean your act up, and uh, quit trying to, you know, somebody like Fat Mike while he's an important icon. He is not a person who should be a uh, role model <laughs> for anyone. Yeah. But probably the most important album, though, I would say, uh, Social Distortion, uh, or what album? Uh, White Light, White Heat, White uh, white Noise. Uh, that album, uh, particularly the song uh, When the Angels Sing. Uh, Mike Ness has been, yeah, uh, he, he has been absolutely formative on almost all music I've ever performed, helped to inspire me in my life. Uh, the Social D album I can put on in the best of times or the worst of times, and it still will absolutely always resonate with you. Uh, and then with any aspects of political stuff, uh, uh, Propagandi and a, a Scottish folk singer named Alistair Hewlett, who is a good fr- friend of mine, a good socialist Scot- songwriter in Scotland, who passed away back in 2010, and Propagandi, good old uh, Canadian anarchist punk. Uh, but yeah, that's a sort of a wide variety. You know, now, now as a as a old man and age 44, and mellow out a little bit or get made fun of. Uh, punk friends like to make fun of me because they'll stop by to say hi and uh, listen to the Grateful Dead or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I try and find uh, my, my wife, Alicia. Um, you know, she she loves hearing some of the music stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, we got a nice, quiet life and more sort of quiet music and things and like to have some nostalgia about the the past music scene, but uh, very happy in my adult life and my my marriage and my career here with Alicia and Mount Pleasant. And yeah, yeah. So yeah, this is a, yeah. Well, I used to, I actually tried to started writing a book once. And someday I'd love to finish it. I was going to write a book called uh, "Becoming Bourgeois," and the the subtitle was going to be uh, an oral history of uh, punks as professors. Um, and that was one of the things I found what I think is cool with punk rock is since one of the founding figures of punk rock is uh, Greg Graffin from Bad Religion but also more appropriately Dr. Greg Graffin um, professor of uh, biology uh, ocean biology I believe out in California is that uh, yeah punks they, they have several different routes they can travel they can either A. continue on with things and go off and uh, be junkies or end up in prison things like that uh, B can completely step away from things and try and be a role model citizen, but you know that doesn't work because our, our pasts haunt us. Or C, I found uh, so many people with punk rock is that they went out and got PhDs, uh, and it, it, for a lot of them, it was it, as I talked to people over and over living over in the UK and throughout the US as a professor for about fifteen years was that uh, yeah, is that the people who grew up as part of a scene that was critical of a system. You know, there's nothing more punk rock than uh, taking over the system, you know? And the key to do that is you, you need some letters behind your name. So, uh, yeah, I've known a, a number of punk rockers who wanted to do PhDs and were professors. Uh, you know, I've been a professor at a number of institutions. I started a high school for three years, all sorts of things. And, uh, yeah, went off, and those were extensions of my punk rock adventures in academia. And now I'm just a settled down quiet small town man living a happy life <laughs> yeah. sounds like a nice place to 
wrap things up. So yeah. I guess one last question. Um, well, is there anything we missed, do you think? Anything we missed? Um, you know, that you wanted to touch on. Well, I, I think one of the, the, the big things, you know, with the Mount Pleasant and CMU are, are have been going through a crisis the last several years. Oh yeah, enrollments are down. It's having a huge impact upon the community. Yeah, downtown local line. businesses. Uh, yeah, is that that so often with all these things that uh, people are trying to figure out ways to how do we change this? How do we change that? And I really hope that one of the things that will add an element to the the revitalization of this community is young people actively engaging, uh, whether it be through music, whether it be starting up local businesses, all these things, is that, you know, I, one of the things that is so challenging in the modern world that's so different. You know what? When I was a, growing up, you know, not sound like the old man before the interwebbies and the <laughs> smartphones, but people people would sit at coffee shops for hours on end talking with each other, engaging with each other, meeting other people. Yeah, there was more social interaction. Well, yeah, because, you know, even even when laptops started getting popular, it was before Wi-Fi. So, and I saw that transition as I was going into grad school, son with the birth of Wi-Fi, and even before smell, cell phones, as everyone, everyone spends all their time staring at the lit-up rectangle in front of them, uh, whether it be the little screen in their hand or the... the Ten different monitors in front of them is um, it's just gotten even worse during the pandemic. Is oh, yeah. all become slaves to screens. Uh, you know, go to a coffee shop now, and, and people are just sitting there on their their smart. Or even you just try and sit down, you know, with a friend or your partner. Uh, you know, I I think that the the one of the key things to revitalize aspects about this community and going forward is uh, more talk about putting our screens down and thinking that that's engaging with the world somehow and to go out there and actually engage with the world. Yeah, and actually do something. Right, right. And that's the thing, you know, be, that, that spirit was there before we had these things. Like, we're constantly, if we felt bored, felt we had nothing to do, we didn't go off and play video games, all these things. Although we did play a share, fair share of video games. We went out and we started scenes. We started movements. Uh, we started businesses. Uh and that's just it's it's one thing that I, I that I find fearful for modern society. Uh, the your, my recommendation: the most punk rock thing one could do, and the best thing one can do for their community. Um, all your social networks, cancel them all. I, I canceled all mine months ago. Uh, I now have normal blood pressure. <laughs> if I want to talk with somebody, I give them a call. When I'm sitting with other people. I'm not staring at my phone. Uh, we're all becoming slaves to these new forms of technology and thinking they're connecting us with whether it's through social engagements or our work. Um, yeah, take a step away from the technology and actually engage with other human beings. Uh, I, 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 I've always hoped that would be the lesson that comes out of the COVID pandemic, but I, I'm fearful that it's going to be the opposite. Is that during COVID, everyone got so addicted to being at home and staring at their screens that. I don't think a lot of people know how to break the addiction, and how do you have how do you have yeah. a community at all, or even have a friggin' society when people are just caught in their little echo chambers, staring at doom scrolling, uh, and paying attention to a bunch of nonsense and ignoring the people right yeah. in front of them. 
Yeah, I mean, the pandemic, that kind of spoke loudly to me. I don't know why, honestly, it would not speak to anyone else. I mean, you know, after the pandemic, things are opening up again. I'm finally enjoying, you know, gatherings with people, even just in-person classes. And I'm like, man, this is what we've been missing out on all this time. But other people not realizing that, this social disconnect, man. If people haven't seen the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, uh, have you seen that? I've heard of it. It's the the founders of of all the major platforms, whether it it be Facebook, Twitter, all these things, or even aspects of your Google search. I mean, and what it points out is like our reality now, instead of being based upon us trying to form a reality, is based upon corporate algorithms and based upon people manipulating algorithms. and it, you know, you can you can type in what is climate change on your phone in Google right next to you. Somebody else type it in, you get completely different results. And people think that that's reality, um, and it's not. And it it freaks me out. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, you know, once a society takes a step forward into new things, that you can't turn back the clock of time. You can't undo things. That's true. But the world had enough of a pause during the pandemic that I hope people would want to step away from their their screens and their 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 technology addictions uh, or other addictions in their life, and to um, yeah, fully appreciate the the beauty of the life that we have. Because I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the reason why you know, for a moment number one, that human beings are born, uh, we're there's a reason why a baby cries when it comes out. To be born is a friggin' existential crisis. To be alive is an existential crisis. And for the fact that we went through a collective existential crisis together as a global civilization, something should come out of that. Yeah. And not the same old, same old. Uh, but yeah, nowadays, not even the... the uh, I'm... Yeah, one of the nice things about getting old is that, that you can you can care less about engaging with a lot of things that young people engage with. But when I see people who are engaging with things in the larger world, or at least think they are, is it horrifies me. Uh, it's not the information age; it's the disinformation age. Uh, that and that's not conspiracy theory or something. Any of that kind of load of nonsense. What it is is just a basic knowledge of how our, our world functions on on algorithms and. Uh, corporate profit and that yeah I don't know it's an awkward time seeing our society being torn apart because people are staring at screens and uh, getting fed a a, a poisonous virus yeah Uh, yeah I think it's still a good lesson to take out of this you know even something as abstract as talking about punk rock is be involved get out and do stuff be a citizen yeah yeah be 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 engaged uh, and not engaged over a technical thing, be engaged face to face, because well, and actually maybe that's a good close up. That was actually one of the most influential bands ever in my life, as the the punk rock band Face to Face. Because really, what punk rock is at the end of the day is the ability uh, to look at oneself in the mirror, to process things realistically go out there and do something about it. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, people always think about punk as being anti-social. I think punk is one of the most important social movements of, of the modern world because it it inspires us uh, not to be passive. Uh, 
not to be passive agents in this thing called life. Yeah. yeah some great stuff there. All right. Well, Mr. Lewis, uh, thank you very much for Dr. Lewis, thank you. Oh, yeah, Dr. Lewis. I, had to, I'm, I still got 55 grand of student loans to pay off for that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that's a subject for yeah. a different time. But yeah, no, it's been, been an absolute pleasure here. Yeah, yeah. thank you, Dr. Lewis. Uh, it's been a great discussion. All right. And as we used to say in the old days, Granny Smith rocks. For the two people who listen to it who are from my friend group, you'll know exactly what that means. <laughs> thank you for listening to Passing the Mic. Once again, I am Michael Pye. For more great podcasts like this, check out Central Michigan Life Podcasts on Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. Have a good one.